Welcome to part two of our series here on Retire Smarter, where we interview retirement researcher Dr. David Blanchett. In part two of the conversation, Kevin and Data will touch on Monte Carlo simulations. They'll talk about guarantees in retirement income planning, you know, things like annuities. And of course, we'll touch on some cryptocurrency just for some fun before wrapping things up for the day. Get ready for some more great education about investing, finances, and retirement. Let's get things over to Kevin for part two of our interview with David. I guess when you look at some of these observations, you know, for me, there was for a long time, more than 10 years, we've always been kind of having those multiple goals, maybe even some different inflation rates on some of those goals like healthcare and what have you, and kind of something really emulating that kind of go-go, slow-go, no-go, that sort of you know, spending decline that you mentioned over time, about one to two percent on an average basis on a real you know, kind of return basis. But when you look at some of the the implications from, say, a traditional financial plan, you know, how does this sort of, um, you know, modeling, if you will, or kind of using this retirement spending data, what does that do to financial plans in terms of maybe when people can retire, how much they need to save, how much they can spend? Well, so I think that's the key is, is what if you start using you know, a collection of more realistic assumptions, what it tends to do is result in higher spending levels or lower required savings rates. Now, again, there is just a ton of assumptions that kind of act as levers that move the outcomes different ways when it comes to a financial plan. Um, But if you just kind of more address this idea of flexibility, it really can change your perspective on, on how you want to, you know, fund your retirement via investments and everything else. I think that, you know, individuals that do have those quote unquote needs covered more from, you know, you know, guaranteed income really have a lot more freedom. You know, maybe you don't need more guaranteed income. Maybe you don't need to worry so much about, you know, spending more from your portfolio because you can cut back if you have to. Because as we've seen in 2022, the markets can do crazy stuff. I mean, you know, it, it is stressful to have to think about, you know, you know, you know, what what is healthcare going to be in 20 years from now? No one knows. Um, but the one thing I do worry too often is that is that we we you know individuals do financial plans to age 110 with a 99% success rate and and, and they just don't enjoy the experiences when they're a younger retiree that they likely could have enjoyed. Yeah, I agree. It's um, you have to be able to kind of live in the present, but also that you're okay in the future. And I, I'm completely going from memory here. I actually did a, a try to do a long tail Google search, but I couldn't find it. But if I remember correctly, uh, I read an article. I, I thought you were the author. I think you're the author um, talking about um, success rates and s- something to the effect that you know a 50 percent success rate may be okay. And, is that ring a bell or am I completely misremembering here? Well, no. So I, I, I don't know that I wrote that one, but I actually 100% agree because I've done things that are very similar to that. And, you know, to be honest, I, I'm not necessarily a big fan of success rates as an outcomes metric for a financial plan. Um, it's incredibly common today. It's a it's a, something that we often call Monte Carlo analysis, where you you run a projection and you, you kind of count the number of times someone completes their goal. Um, and then you just average that out over the total number of runs or trials. So if you, let's say you've got a goal of, of $50,000 a year in today's dollars, you do a Monte Carlo projection and, and half the time you succeed, you have a 50% success rate. And someone might say, well, oh my gosh, that's way too low. The problem is, is there's, there's no context there whatsoever for if you quote unquote fail or don't accomplish your goal, 
what it actually means for your lifestyle and retirement. It could be that like you've assumed retirement lasts like 35 years and you only ever have a tiny shortfall in the last two years of retirement. Well, that's totally fine. I think what's really, really important to understand is that kind of magnitude of failure. So, you know, when things quote unquote go wrong, what does that mean in terms of your lifestyle? And so for a lot of folks, 50% is going to be totally fine. But for other folks, it needs to be like 95%. And I think that that really gets down to, you know, what is your kind of existing coverage of things like guaranteed income? How flexible are you? What is your consumption basket? And that's a pretty complex question that really, you know, requires the help of a knowledgeable financial planner. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, we, we, in practice, I think pretty much every financial planning software that I've seen uses Monte Carlo. Um, at least I'm thinking of the, the big ones that are out there in our industry. And, you know, we've long been users of it too. And like anything, it, it's a tool. Certainly it has its limitations. Um, and I always liken it to uh, like a radiologist kind of looking at a film. You know, you still have to, you know, radiologists are kind of known as the doctor's doctor. And, you know, if you have something that, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, maybe the film is going to tell you something and you're going to confer with the other doctor and you're really kind of working through it together to triangulate the the information to make a, a good decision or good diagnosis. I'd love to see some of the software having more of kind of a dynamic modeling approach, but um, it just doesn't seem like we're there yet. But one of the things that you mentioned about having kind of guaranteed income relative, maybe a higher floor or higher foundation, if you will, you said another way, um, I completely agree. And it kind of goes back to that idea too, I guess, in my practical experience where you still have to measure that lifestyle and, and everybody's different. You know, what's a need for somebody is, you know, maybe not for somebody else. So, so, you know, it's one thing to go ahead and measure what somebody's lifestyle is costing. It's something else to kind of really rank those priorities. Um, but this is really where it can really be a benefit when you do get down to sort of this modeling and, and just thinking about, Hey, if things go bad, you know, what is the worst case? And then just trying to make it very clear, you know, it's not my judgment as the advisor to go ahead and tell the client that that's okay, but it's, I perceive it as my job to make sure that I understand the situation, convey it very clearly so they can make a concrete decision on what's best for them, whether that, you know, worst case, what be it unlikely or not, um, if it were to manifest, is that okay? Or do they want to keep working a little bit more or spending a little bit less or whatever the case may be? You know, it's all about trade-offs, right? When you get into the retirement income and, and you mentioned sort of the guarantees uh, to it, um, I guess let's just kind of open up that part of it. But I mean, how do you think about that? What are some of the tools or products um, that you see being most effective in that space? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, one thing, you know, to, to kind of piggyback one of your comments you made is that I, you know, so we, I'm, I'm all into this idea of needs and wants and where you're kind of, and you can even do like needs, wants, wishes, and dreams. I think that it's, it's really important to decompose the retirement spending goal or liability into that framework. And to your earlier point, like I, I, I've got a buddy I work with and I make the point, like I could, I could care less about golf, but for him, like golf is like an absolute need. Like he is not willing to cut back on that. And so really <laughs> that's, it does take, it does take conversations because everyone's different, you know, like, if, you know, you just can't kind of generalize things um, in terms of, of, of what expenses are really important, those that aren't. But I, I do think that, that like, to me, there's such a super obvious answer today where, where you want to cover the needs uh, delay claiming Social Security really is just, to me, it's an absolute no-brainer. And, you know, I often, people will say, well, David, you know, like the like the trust fund is underfunded. And I'm like, and I, and I say a few things. First, like the odds of them cutting 
my grandfather's benefit is approximately zero, right? Old folks vote. No one wants our our older generation to have to live off less. That's not a viable political option. I think there's going to be a lot of changes to the program that I eventually receive in you know 25 or 30 years, and that's okay, right? I think that that what's what's also important is that you cannot buy anything that's nearly as good as delay claiming Social Security today, even if they cut benefits. And a reason for that is because Social Security isn't priced based upon market interest rates. And so everything else you buy, a bond, a private annuity, is based upon prevailing interest rates. Well, Social Security isn't, right? It's tax advantage, it's linked to inflation, there's a survivor benefit. I think that you know virtually every client who engages a financial advisor should likely be delaying to age 70 and, and people will say, well, David, what, what if I'm not healthy? And I say, well, if you think about, about bad outcomes in retirement, this gets to our earlier discussion about, about risks. If you happen to delay claiming to age 70, assuming that you can, and you die at 72, your kids get all your stuff, right? They have no worries. They maybe, maybe they would've gotten a little bit more had you, you know, claimed it say 62, but the kids are like, well, like all of your life savings that you spent 40 years accumulating, they get almost all of it. Okay. To me, like the really, really bad outcome is someone, you know, claims at 62 and lives to age 105. And at some point spends all of their savings down and the kids have to support them. So I think that when you start kind of reframing this definition of like, what is the bad outcome for things like Social Security, it, it, it isn't a break even age of 78. It's, you know what, even if at age 70, I only live to age 74, if that happens to occur, I know that my kids are still taken care of in terms of what I have left to leave them versus what they may have to do for me and support me if I live a long time. So I think that the key when making decisions about, you know, do I allocate more to guaranteed income or delay claiming Social Security is, is really is like, what is that downside? And I, I worry that a lot of break even analysis doesn't correctly reflect what that kind of negative event could possibly be. Yeah, in practice, <laughs> we've uh, we've had a lot of very happy clients. We've long been proponents of Social Security deferral. Um, I want to say my claim to fame, but I had a client in two, a new client in two thousand nine, repay their benefits, uh, and so they could go ahead. And you can't do this anymore, but back then you could. And uh, the Social Security Administration had a stat that there, only 49 people did that in the year 2009. So I was like, well, that's, that's <laughs> pretty cool. Now, it, to actually get it done and walk in the office with a check was a little bit interesting. But but we were able to do that. And now with inflation being where it's been and where it seems like it's going to continue to be for at least some period of time, we've gotten a lot of, you know, clients were happy. I, ha I haven't had anybody that has waited and deferred you know, say to age 70 or, or a later age, where once they got there, they were unhappy about it. They've all like uniformly been really happy about it. And now that the inflation adjustments, you know, what they were last year and what they're likely to be are on track to be for next year, they're really happy um, that they've done it. So it's, it's one of those things. And it's that behavioral part too. It's like, you know, they kind of have that mental accounting retirees too. We all do about, you know, Hey, it's easier to spend guaranteed income. Um, they don't like spending their own money necessarily, but at the same time, you know, to go ahead and defer social security, they have to kind of get over that hurdle of, Hey, I'm going to have more guaranteed income down the road, but I have to get over that behavioral hurdle now and spend some of my money today to go ahead and bridge that gap. And you know, thankfully I, we've been successful in, in the vast majority of cases of doing that, but, um, but it's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's definitely, <laughs> it definitely requires conversations and a lot of 
kind of brute force sometimes to get people there. But uh, I, I completely uh, agree. And I think this environment that we're in is is certainly you know showing that to be true. So I guess I'll say what you said maybe in a different way, but pretty much everybody has some guaranteed income, you know, whether they have Social Security um, or if they are in one of the states where they didn't have Social Security, but they have maybe have a, a state-based pension plan or something along those lines, that's certainly guaranteed income as well. Um, but then, you know, maybe there's a choice of, hey, should I actually buy more guaranteed income, you know, through like an annuity or something like that? Or should I just go ahead and keep it invested? And what I would say is kind of take a more probability based approach to the retirement planning. Um, how do you think about that decision? Yeah, I mean, so it's funny, you know, it's very anecdotal, but both of my parents were public school teachers. And, you know, I was actually talking to him like two weeks ago. And my mom was saying like the best choice they made was to like buy extra years of pension benefits. You know, it's just radically simplified for them retirement. They don't have to worry about the markets and everything else because they know what they're going to get. Now, that's a, a bit different because that was a, a relatively generous payout. And, you know, we're, we're using the word word annuity and people <laughs> react to that that word very differently. And the first thing I have to say is like, is like there was a legit Dateline special about annuities. And so I think anyone that is aware of the, of the, of the category in general knows that there are a lot or at least some bad actors out there and not so great products, right? But the thing is, is that in any kind of space that exists, whether it be mutual funds, even ETFs, there's always bad products out there, right? The key that you have got to be aware of, it doesn't mean that, that, that they couldn't possibly benefit you as a retiree or an investor. I think it's important to kind of understand where and how the product works though. And I mean, just to be honest, you know, like the, the recent kick in inflation hasn't necessarily helped other protected products because Social Security is the only, you know, quote unquote annuity that has benefits for retirees that are linked to inflation, right? Every other thing out, every other product out there, um, you might get a raise if the investments do well based upon the structure given inflation. But the fact that a lot of them are nominal benefits to me is, is a bit scary right now. You know, if I go out and buy what's called a SPIA or a single premium immediate annuity, um, I might get a, a nice healthy amount of income today, but if we do see persistent inflation over say 5%, the, the actual value of that income in 20 or 30 years is gonna be a lot smaller. And I think that right now that's gotten a lot of folks worried about you know, a lot of these more traditional structures because no one knows where inflation is gonna head in the near future and it can have a material benefit on um, you know, annuities or other types of pensions that aren't explicitly linked to inflation. So in uh, annuities are kind of a, it's been a while since we've spoken about them. I think, oh man, it's been a couple of years, but we, we probably talked more along the lines of the Dateline episode, which I haven't seen, but I definitely have to look up. Uh, and a lot of just the, you know, sales incentives, conflicts of interest, so on and so forth. Uh, we, we did talk about SPIAs and deferred income annuities. Um, the benefits of those could be how, uh, of those, particularly for, uh, you know, a more conservative investor. Uh, we, I remember talking about that with when rates were even lower and thus expected returns were even lower on the fixed income portion of the portfolio. Um, when you think about annuities in general, that there's others too, kind of the variable annuities and some of the fixed index annuities. When you think about annuities though, if you do have somebody that, you know, has already deferred social security, but still wants to, or feels like they need to um, acquire additional guaranteed income, do you have a preference uh, over what type of annuity that you would go ahead and utilize for that? Well, I mean, if you were to ask any kind of academic, the overwhelming response would be what's called a deferred income annuity. Um, they're also called longevity insurance. If the product meets certain 
requirements. It could be what's called a QLAC or a qualified longevity annuity contract, where you, you buy the annuity and income starts at some later age. So I buy it at say age 60, but if I'm still alive at age 80, the income kicks in. Um, here's the problem. People uh, do not like that structure at all. It, it, is, it is incredibly painful behaviorally. And when people buy these, they're called, I'm just gonna call them a DIA, deferred income annuity. When they buy a DIA, they almost always include what's called a cash refund provision, where if the person dies, they get all their money back. That like effectively destroys the value of the product. And so if you are like a, you know, if you're that rare robot out there who who is, you know, hyper, you know, Vulcan-like and can and, and, and super rational. Yeah, like buying a life-only deferred income annuity could be a valid a valid strategy. The, but then then the problem is, and I'm looking at this right now, is that only people that are like super healthy actually buy these. And so I think that that when you think about like what is the true best insurance product, it really does require thinking about all these different dimensions. Like there is the there is the academic perspective, but there's also like the behavioral stuff and the product stuff. And what you tend to see is a lot of the products that 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 academics tend to kind of you know talk all lovingly about really don't do very well in the kind of the operational behavioral buckets, and then that dramatically affects kind of the overall efficacy of the product in the real world. Yeah, I'm curious. I know. Uh... The single premium immediate annuity is what I guess I would call is kind of like the most pension-like, right? You give insurance companies some money and they'll give you an income stream for life if it's you know kind of a life-only SPSO, uh, call it a private pension or, or whatever yeah. you will. Um, I know those historically, and it's been a it's been a few at least a few years since I looked, but I think those traditionally maybe around two percent of the total market. Um, I don't know if one, if that's still the case and, and if so, I'm curious how that compares to the deferred income annuities. So I think that last year, forget the exact number, was it eight billion dollars in sales of SPIAs and like only two billion of DIAs versus like two hundred and fifty billion total in the entire industry. And so I think like one one important point about the word annuity is that it's kind of a it doesn't really mean anything today. I think that, that the vast majority of annuities sold aren't actually used for retirement income. And that's actually the purpose of the word, right? The, the word annuity, I forget like the Latin root, but it's been around for two they've been around for two thousand years providing lifetime protected lifetime income. That's not what most annuities are today. Most annuities today are are used more for accumulation, taking advantage of, of that kind of tax deferred structure. So I think that, you know, to your point, it's like it's like, the, the you know, it's it, the funny thing, too, is that, you know, a lot of the strategies that people talk about, you know, again, when academics write about these, they will often assume you can buy an annuity linked to inflation. They don't even exist. So I think that, that you know, just one thing that I, I, I love to point out is like is like, you, you know, a lot of the products that, 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 that are used in research are not economically viable for a host of reasons. And so, you know, you really have to kind of put on that that behavioral lens and understand how insurers develop products and what they look at to understand what actually makes the most sense. I think that where the market's moving are to more products where there's more, um, you can call it like risk sharing, where if the market does well, you have the possibility to have a, a higher lifetime payout. The market does poorly, it might be a lower payout. And people might people get a little bit queasy. Oh, what do you mean? Like it's not a fixed payout for life. And I say, well, you already have a fixed guaranteed lifetime income benefit, either from Social Security or some kind of private pension. You can actually take a little bit of risk usually on, on other sources of income if it's much more efficient that can create a lot more income over your lifetime. So I really do see this space evolving in the near future because there's a huge interest in, in, in adding solutions in the defined contribution space and helping advisors and retirees kind of you know better tackle this question about longevity risk. 
So it seems like the innovation is maybe more likely to come through changing regulation in the 401k space. And then maybe that trickles over to the individual market as well. I think what, what you have is you have, you know, 10 plus trillion dollars in the defined contribution market that is largely untapped for lifetime protected income solutions. And so just, you know, even even 10 percent of that is incredibly attractive for insurers. And I also think that, you know, to your point, a lot of advisors don't actively consider annuities for a host of reasons. So I think what we're what, what the industry is really trying to do is create strategies that advisors that defined contribution plan sponsors that the industry itself just finds more attractive. And I think that that's going to be a, a huge net positive for retirees and investors because, um, you know, the more institutionally priced high quality products out there, the higher the chance that those are what the average person gets 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 put into versus some of the products that, that were featured on that Dateline special. Yeah, makes sense. Um, well, we're kind of winding down here, maybe about five minutes left or so. So I, I know I can't uh, close out without asking you about a recent paper that you did on on crypto. Um, so cryptocurrency. Uh, so can you share a little bit about what you wrote about there? Sure. So, I, you know, uh, I think that cryptocurrencies and the underlying technologies there have have absolutely phenomenal potential. I think that there's, you know, I, I want to. I always want to open up when I talk about crypto and digital assets with that up top because I I am by no means dismissing the the efficacy of especially the technologies involved in creating these. My concern is more of should I be thinking about buying this as part of a portfolio? You know, when I'm thinking a portfolio, it's 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 established asset classes like stocks in bonds, in real estate. And I think that for a host of reasons, cryptocurrencies just don't check those boxes. And so if you want to kind of get out in the space and you want to, you know, actively trade, that's okay. I mean, like it can be okay to to day trade stocks as long as it's not a material portion of your portfolio. But, you know, I worry about individuals kind of going all in to cryptocurrencies. You know, it, it, it's, it's ironic or funny, but, but just before we jumped on this call, I saw an article on the Wall Street Journal talking about individuals who lost their entire life savings investing in different cryptocurrencies. And so, you know, what they did is, is, is they viewed the, the, the potential, the run up, and they went all into these, you know, quote unquote, stable coins or, or other cryptos like Dogecoin, and they didn't understand the risks. And so I think that, you know, when I'm talking to advisors and talking to investors, retirees, it's okay to view it as a fun speculative asset. But I, I just I just really get concerned when folks talk about, quote unquote, investing in crypto, because I see it more akin to gambling, at least right now. That's great. Um, and, uh, that's helpful, too. You got to be careful if you put that out there on Twitter, you might get mobbed by a bunch of. Uh, oh, you do. Blue. You do. Trust me. You, you do. So it's funny. Actually, I wrote a piece for Think Advisor and uh, somehow it, it popped up on my wife's um, like Facebook feed and she looked in the comments. And I, I never got to see the actual comment, but she said there were some people that were that were very disappointed in my in my article. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm looking at uh, just the last few papers you have on your on your website that you wrote, uh, Income Investing in a Low-Yield Environment. We kind of talked about that maybe a little bit. Um, into the Unknown, Best Practices for Return Assumptions in a Financial Plan. We certainly touched on that. Um, how to Estimate the End of Retirement, which sounds incredibly um, exciteful. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious, when you kind of look back um, over things that you've recently written or are currently working on, um, anything that's um, really kind of you know interesting you think to share to a uh, more pre-retiree retiree audience that we have? The one thing that that, that I've consistently seen in, in a topic I've researched for at least the last decade 
is how individuals respond to market volatility. And whether you look at, at the 2008 crisis or the most recent 2020 kind of COVID downturn, um, you know, older investors, without a doubt, are the most likely to trade. Um, in theory, they shouldn't be. I think that the reason is because they um, they're afraid, right? If, if you're 40 years old and your 401k goes down, it's almost like, who cares? I've got 20 plus years to make it back. If you're, if you're 62 or 75, then that loss is a lot more real to you. And so I think it's, it's, it's absolutely critical for individuals who are, who are, you know, in or at retirement to have some kind of professional helping them figure out what they should be doing because left to their own devices, it appears they make the worst decision. So um, the one kind of recurring theme throughout a lot of my stuff is there, there, there can be um, a value for individuals to get help through advice. And that appears to be especially important um, around retirement. That research, I know Morningstar um, has done some research there, um, Vanguard, I think they called it Advisor Alpha. Um, but I guess real quick in closing, can you just highlight some of those areas where empirically those studies have shown that advisors, I would say, at least have the potential to add value, um, assuming that they're you know well-educated, execute, trustworthy, competent, all that good stuff? Yeah. So when I was at Vanguard, I actually wrote the, the research that, that they did. It was on a concept that I called Gamma. Which is it just it's just kind of thinking about about all the ways that that you know it, it gets to accomplishing a goal, right? You 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 hire an advisor to help you accomplish a financial goal, and and individuals don't always need help. A lot of folks are 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 good on their own, but in reality, there's all these decisions you have to make. You know, how do you invest intelligently so that you you reduce your taxes? How do you know when to claim Social Security? How do you stay invested in the market um, when things get volatile? How do you have a truly diversified portfolio? Um, you know, where do you save money for retirement? How do you withdraw assets? How much can you withdraw? Um, these are all incredibly complicated decisions that only get more complex as you age. And so kind of the marginal value of advice actually tends to increase, especially around retirement, because there's so many choices you have to make. And a lot of them are kind of somewhat irrevocable. So again, I think that, that again, you know, I would never suggest that everyone needs, needs help, but the value of that help really is highest around retirement. All right. Well, Mr. Doctor, excuse me, David Blanchett, I really, really appreciate you being on the show today and sharing your wisdom. Um, the work you've done is makes me feel lazy, quite honestly, looking at all these papers you wrote. Really impressive. Uh, keep up the great work. And again, thanks so, so much for being on the show today. Sure thing. This concludes our two-part series on Retire Smarter with retirement researcher, Dr. David Blanchett. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any questions for Kevin Krosky about your particular financial and retirement plan, don't hesitate to reach out. In fact, if you want to schedule a 15-minute complimentary conversation with an experienced financial advisor on the True Wealth team, all you have to do is go to truewealthdesign.com. Again, that's truewealthdesign.com and click on the Are We Right For You button to schedule your call. Or you can dial 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-TWD-PLAN. Thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the next episode of Retire Smarter with Kevin Krosky. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.